I think certainly what what springs to mind when you when you ask that question was we did a job in Bosnia in two thousand and one, where we effectively robbed a bank. To, to be honest, uh, it was all top secret at the time, but certainly the the brigade commander has has since written about it publicly. So I'm presuming it's okay. Andy Torbett has been described as the underwater action man and the scuba daredevil. He's a former soldier, underwater explorer, stunt performer, cave diver, free diver, and essentially everything I've ever considered cool from when I was six years old right up to today. You're going to learn a ton about him in this show, but here's a brief summary of what we will discuss. How he completed some of the hardest training courses the British military has to offer, Are there any challenges Andy just wouldn't touch? How to keep going when the learning curve is at its steepest and you feel at your most down? The temporary wisdom that being in the wild teaches you and far, far more. There were times in this conversation where I honestly completely forgot that I was a participant in it. I felt like I was listening to another podcast because I was just loving and absorbing the the conversation that we had. I found this completely captivating and Honestly, I'm completely stoked to bring you a conversation like this. And a quick heads up again, just like in Kevin Gaskell's podcast last week, my audio quality is pretty terrible. It's like you can listen to it definitely um, and you'll get used to it very quickly. But suffice to say, I had to make do with my AirPods just like last week. Um, I'm not going to bore you with the technological side. And again, sorry, but you'll get used to it pretty quickly and I'll be back up to my high standard very soon. But... Let's get back to this conversation with Andy Torbett. Let's start with a an interesting question. Why strap jet engines to your legs and jump up plane? Ah, okay, good. And that, that's a good first question. Normally people start like, oh, you know, how are you? And a bit, a bit of niff-naff and trivia that no one wants to hear a podcast. Uh, you want to get straight into it. <laughs> um, so... Let's see where to start. Because with most things, you know, there's the story in itself and then there's obviously all the little little steps that got you to that point but i'll start with the headline so um i did a series called beyond bionic for children's bbc which was all about um kind of well a human with science technology versus nature so and it was my idea i'd pitched it for like 10 years couldn't get it made and then finally because i pitched this to the adults but but children's bbc picked it up and then i was like yeah cool i don't mind making for kids even better and the idea was that you take up some really like cool animals with some impressive kind of powers and you'd see if a human being could could match them potentially you know using technology so this was the peregrine falcon is the fastest animal in the world um, it's been measured in a stoop, which is a, a head-first dive towards prey at about 152 miles an hour. So, you know, I'm a skydiver. Could I go that fast? Um, and um, now, for complete transparency and honesty, I can go that fast because I now compete at speed skydiving for for Team GB and was out at the World Championships last year in, in, in Arizona. But clearly for, for this, we you know, we wanted to bring in technology, so I had to kind of, you know, I tried but couldn't quite make up 250 miles an hour with um, with with on the jumps. So a friend of mine at the UK Space Agency um, who is, you know, he is like a Leonardo da Vinci type character. He's, he's got a brain the size of a planet. But anyway, he designed me these two sort of prototype jet engines that would would be strapped to my legs in order to give me an extra 20 kilograms of thrust so that i could then 
you know, break through that magic two five two and and sort of inverted commas beat the Peregrine Falcon um, in a in a in a virtual race about who was the fastest, um, and it meant we could we could talk to kids about you know. Th- frankly things that are often pretty dull like the coefficient of drag and you know acceleration and you know like physics based like pretty dull physics but use you know peregrine falcons very cool bird of prey you know rocket packs and engines and skydiving so uh that is why i jumped out of a plane with rockets strapped to my legs <laughs> what was was that process like is it a very different experience to standard skydiving is it kind of like a is it just the same what, what's going on uh, it's, so i mean there's different disciplines within skydiving the normal skydiving people are used to seeing is that sort of belly to earth um yeah. so it's quite it's quite stable uh flat flying and then speed skydiving you, you can't change your weight but what you can change because people think terminal velocity is fixed it's not um you know because if you reduce the drag for the same weight you're going to speed up so in speed skydiving we go head down and we try and make our body as kind of streamlined as possible which is difficult because you're it's almost like trying to balance a pencil on its tip but um we then put these rockets on which gives an extra boost which actually is a little bit hard to control and one of the problems we had on the first jump which was the one we filmed um, was that, um, and this is often where you, your scientists and your sort of, I don't know, your blokes in the coal face, you need them both. Um, because uh, my friend, he, he'd, he'd put the, the, the propellers, the fans, if you will, rotated in the same direction, which doesn't sound like a big deal. But it meant that it was it was co- spinning me up. It was causing me a corkscrew because the, you know the, these things were kind of turning one way, and there's a you know for every reaction there's an opposite and equal uh, reaction. So as they spun one way, it was trying to spin me the other way. So I have to put a leg and an arm out to counteract that effect. And that slows me down. So again, it, he would have gone right. Okay, if the next iteration would have been that the the fans counter rotated. So one one went clockwise one went anti-clockwise and that would have stopped that and i could have just focused on controlling the uh controlling the sort of jump um but you know it's cool because it's prototype it was, it was cool to sort of use this new stuff kind of live on camera um but it's good fun you know it's just i, I enjoy those sort of you know kind of missions like having a purpose having a point to run to jump on a plane mm-hmm. and fall for the sake of it so um and the good thing about skydiving stuff, whether it be for documentaries like this was or for skydiving stunts in like movies, is that it's a pretty small community. So you jump with your mates. Like the guy who was filming it is probably my best mate in skydiving. So and you leave the crew, the camera crew, director, all the sort of you know the the circus behind, and you hey, if you get in a plane together, it's just you and him, and you get fifty minutes chill out with your mate, and then you jump out a plane with your mate. So it's basically what you do on a weekend off anyway. Sweet. So you've done like a lot of different adventure stuff like you're a polymath of adventure i'd say like was it diving horse riding skydiving soldier search and rescue mountain guide like stunts like presenting like what's the the thing that links all those things yeah there's i mean i suppose it's it's that love of kind of being outdoors or being at the sharp end you're pushing yourself, and uh, you, you know the, th- the thing I do most. The thing I'm, I'm best at definitely is the is the underwater stuff. So things like cave diving, deep technical diving, rebreathers, mixed gas, bit of free diving. Um, you know, and I love the exploration element there. 
Uh, the climbing, I, I mean, just, I do less because you, you you can't maintain a high level of skill in too many things. It's just, it's just mm-hmm. impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the mountains, cliff stuff I do nowadays isn't so much like climbing. It, it's this, it's the mountain rescue and the cave rescue stuff, mostly ropes. So I kind of hang off ropes more than I do climbing now. Um, but I still maintain skydiving at a decent level. Um, the, the horse riding I did for for stunts to get on the British Stunt Register, uh, although I've kept it up. I, I try and ride whenever I can just because it's something I, I've enjoyed and that we do as a family. And I think it's, it's – but what I love is is and within stunts, within expeditions, within d- diving, so like cave diving, exploration, or, or skydiving when you're testing out you know a new prototype kit – it, it kind of harkens back to the days when I was in the forces. It's why I, I pushed to get into like, things like bomb disposal. It's these moments or these missions, these jobs that require you to bring your A game. You know, mm-hmm. it's the reason you train every day. It's you stay fit. It's the reason you stay focused. The reason you stay healthy. The reason you train. The reason you keep your skills up because you have to bring your A game. And there is bizarrely. Although there's the anxiety and nerves and all that sort of stuff within, like you know, deep solo cave exploration, or you've got a massive stunt when you know you've got a few hundred people all waiting, you know, they're all there for you, and it's three, two, one action, or you're walking towards the you know the bomb. There's a kind of moment of of, of both clarity when all your senses are heightened, but also of, of kind of peace because you're like who, nothing else matters right now. Um, so almost in those moments of kind of high. Theoretically, it was high stress. There's actually quite a lot of calm. When did you first experience that? I think certainly what what springs to mind when you when you ask that question was we did a job in Bosnia in two thousand and one, where we effectively robbed a bank. To, to be honest, uh, it was all top secret at the time, but certainly the the brigade commander has has since written about it publicly so i'm presuming it's okay and it wasn't so much as that we were we were recovering so we say recovering um ill-gotten gains from a bank in in mostar um that was kind of being laundered through this bank for a terrorist organization so um and we our job was to go in with it to be fair with it with infantry uh like uh, companies surrounding the bank um, and, and various other other nationals um uh, forces had tried, like because it was a it was, it was a multinational force out in, out in the Balkans, and they tried a few times and, and failed. So they brought the British in because we had a very good reputation in the Balkans, um, not because we're better than anybody else, but because we've we've we learned how to operate in that environment. So you know, in a peacekeeping role from basically making mistakes in Ireland. You know, we, we'd kind of we'd, we'd learned the hard way. So we had a pro- quite a good reputation in Boston Costs as being kind of mediators and peacekeepers. So they brought us in. Uh, infantry, uh, and with some tanks as well, actually ringed this bar- uh, barking as a secure force. And then we went in to, to basically lift the stuff out of the safe uh, and out the bank. And I'd been briefed up by the... Um, by the brigade commander that uh, as the sort of guy in charge of the bank force, if you will, that I'd be the primary target for enemy snipers. And we had our own snipers on, on doing anti-sniping um, kind of overwatch on the building as well. But I'd be the primary target for that sort of stuff. Um, which, you know, again, people go, oh, it's terrible. But actually, you know, you almost feel like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, I'm, you, you've kind of, and this is why you you join the forces to do this sort of stuff. I so that's why I did. And most of the people I know, you join the forces to go and do this sort of thing. And we pulled up and I stepped out the vehicle, the armored vehicle onto the ground, actually the front of the bank, um, you know, 
and my senses, you know, I it felt like I could breathe. My lungs were bigger. My eyes were sharper. My listening was up. I felt like I gained about 20 IQ points. I just felt sharper. I felt my mind was working quicker. Um, and and I was like, this is it. This is, you know, I, I, you've almost like you've, had, you've got some superpowers. Um, and I must have been like, what age was I then? Like 23, 24? But that's the first time I thought, okay, this is, this is what it's, this is the sharp end. And this is what it feels like to be on it. Um, so yeah, I think it's the first thing that really was struck by that moment. So some people in those situations, they heighten their senses, they switch on. It's that kind of um, facilitation model of psychology, like you're enabled by that stress. And some people crumble, they default to the worst part of them. And what I found is that um, through personal experience and coaching others and also being in the military myself, like the people who turn up and show up as their best self in that situation are people who have had the right conditioning and the right genetics too. So like, what was your, like, what are the genetic aspects of like, what, how you brought up and like what your, your family like, and also like, what was the kind of conditioning that you went through at early age? So I was brought up in the Highlands of Scotland. Um, initially I moved into Aberdeen for a couple of years before I left home. Um, so, you know, I, I was always in the outdoor and outdoor world. People say, well, how'd you get into the outdoors? You know, because of the sports I do and, and such like. Mm. I, I didn't, you know, it was just, we just lived, you know, in a, my dad was a forester, so we lived kind of in a forest um, yeah. on, on a big estate. Literally, you know, there was a castle. The Laird lived in the castle with his family and then there was everybody else. Um, it also is a bit outlander, I know, but that's how it worked like <laughs> in the 70s and 80s up in Scotland, probably still now. Um so yeah, that that was it, and then you know, very working class. I suppose looking back now, relatively poor. But I mean, again, you, 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 the world is relative. So to me, it was just normal life. And actually, we did all right. You know, we um, we ate a lot of venison and rabbit and pheasant, which sounds all very posh and high table. But that was just because you know, there's often that sort of meat from shoots was just given away to the to sort of people who worked on the land, and you know, the rabbits were you could just you could just shoot or snare rabbits as much as you want. They were kind of free food. So we used to go out all the time as kids and just snare rabbits and, you know. Um, uh, so there was that. And then um, my, for the sort of latter half of my childhood, my mother raised us herself. Um, and we were pretty, my son and brother were pretty independent characters. Well, all three of us really were. Um, you know, and I look back and did stuff, you know, when I started diving, like, no, I always want to be going to water. I always want to dive. You know, parents didn't dive, that sort of stuff, obviously. It wasn't, I mean, scuba diving wasn't a thing that people kind of did where I was from. But we moved into Aberdeen. I joined the local diving club uh, because it was like seven quid a year membership and 50 pence every Saturday for pool fees. Mm-hmm. So I had a paper round. That's how I – because people say to me, oh, it's okay for you, you know, you were diving as a kid yeah. and, you know, because you were spoiled, you rich parents. Like, no, 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 I had a paper round. I got paid £5 a week, mm-hmm. and that more than covered my uh, my, my, my fees to learn scuba dive. So privileged. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, because you, you didn't – well, you know, I, I, you didn't need it. You just got off, as long as you got off your ass, it was things were doable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the club was very good. I was kind of a mascot for the club because, again – you know, it was very few like 12, 13, 14 year olds just rock up to the club going, yeah, can I, can you teach me to dive? So, you know, I used to get given the odd bit of sit, like kit where people are throwing kit out. I'd, and I'd, I'd, my first wetsuit was all second hand and the top was actually a female's top. 
So as a skinny kind of 12-year-old, you know, you, you put your arms down by your side and it balls in all the wrong places. So it's all forever flushing through. So it wasn't, didn't actually work that well as a wetsuit. And, but bear in mind, it's the North Sea that I'm learning to dive in. Um, so, so the, and the climbing, I, mean, I was lucky. My, my, my PE teacher uh, at school was kind of one of the top climbers in Scotland. And he took uh, a few of us out climbing after school sometimes, um, often just so we could learn to Bailey to hold his ropes when he's working on projects. But um, he, 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 I'm not sure why he picked the, the two or three guys that he did, but he, I, he obviously saw something in us that, that, that we didn't see in ourselves. But he took us out to the, the, cliffs, the sea cliffs around Aberdeen and taught us to climb. So that's where I learned to, um, to climb. So, yeah. And I think also... I was always going to join the forces because myself and my brother, from the, the, the background we came from, like my mum's side were sort of farm workers. My, my dad, he was a forester. All his family were coal miners uh, in the west coast of Scotland. Uh, the coal mines closed down when I was still a kid uh, during the Thatcher period, and everyone was out of work. And basically, you went on the dole, or you turned to crime, or you joined the army. That was kind of, the, the army was the way out. My brother joined the army. He's my older brother when he was 16. Um, and, you know, he would come back and he had he had a nice, well, to us, a nice car, you know, XL3i. Um, he had, he'd been, he'd been to places like, been to Cyprus. I mean, it was that, like, for us, that was an amazing life. Um, I think we were always, and, and, you know, we used to have the action men, like everybody else, and the posters and the Falklands were up on our walls. So I think joining the forces was inevitable um, for, for a kid who, you know that that's a, a way out, certainly, or seen to be a way out, and um, and also, it, it, it you know you get paid to go and do cool places and do cool stuff. If you were going to design the ideal kind of training program for a kid who was going to join the forces, it'd be somewhat or have themes of your life. Yeah, from, yeah. From my my guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, cause things like we used to go camping all the time with my brother um, in the woods behind our house. Um, we just go and you know, sleep outside. So when it came to sort of sleeping outside in basic training, I'm like, well, this is, this is all right. It's not a problem. Um, you know, the, the people who'd grown up in cities through no fault of their own, you know, in the centre of London, um, were probably in for a bigger shock than we were. Um, but then, you know, that said, a lot of them came through incredibly strongly. I don't think it's a it's a necessity. It might give you a slight advantage in the first few weeks or, or whatever, but but in reality, if you've got it in you, you've got it in you, regardless of, of, of you know, where you came from. So you joined you joined straight up as a parrot? No, so I um I actually so I went to join um the um the forces when I was sixteen, my brother did. And the guy, the the sort of careers office uh, military careers office in, in, in Aberdeen at the time, he looked at my school results and was like, why don't you join as an officer with these, you know, you've got some pretty decent, um, like, higher A-levels. And I was like, nah, it's, you know, because again, it's not, it's not, um, I was I was almost suffering from reverse snobbery, which I've, not for the first time. Um, and I was like, well, no, pe- people like me don't, don't do that. That's for people who, you know, play polo. And, um, and you know, so, and it often happens, you know, the, the, people talk about the class system. And I, I found the class system is usually driven by the people within that class. It's, it's you know, we're our own worst enemies in whichever, you know, class you think to put yourself. I mean, I'm I'm not a great believer in the class system, to be honest, because it's not really something I've, I've, I've operated in. But anyway, my brother, funny enough, had joined at 16 as a boy soldier, and he got picked up um, at, as an officer, which is great, uh, to go from a soldier, like a lance corporal, to be offered a, a commission. 
And he took it and he started training. And he said to me, look, it's not what you think it is. Yeah, there actually, there are still some units in the army that you pretty much have to play polo to, to join. But the, the vast majority of the British army doesn't matter where you came came from. It matters, you know, if, if you can lead, if you can make a decision, then then they kind of want you at, at a certain rank. Um, they don't care which school you went to. So I was encouraged to do that. Um, and I was told that the best thing to do would be to go to university for like three years and then and then join up. So I was like, cool, I'm going to join the forces. That's it. Um, I might as well do something I'm actually interested in because I, I don't need anything specifically vocational, although it's turned out to, to actually be very, very useful. Um, so I studied zoology uh, and archaeology um, and then specialised in zoology. So I've got a degree in zoology. And I've got a master's in archaeology. Um, and then I joined, so but I actually finished university when I was still 19. Um, I think it was a couple of weeks from my 20th birthday. And then I joined the forces at 20. And initially I went through uh, Royal Marines training, uh, but I broke my, well, I, I injured my back really badly, the, the vertebrae, but the discs as well. Uh, and they thought I was unfixable. I managed to transfer to the army. And then to prove myself fit, I went on to do P Company, the, the para selection course. Uh, and then I went, I was also an army diver, which is one of the other, sort of, there's three kind of arduous courses. If you look at the, the dive course, the commander course, and the and para course. And then um, I pushed for EOD and did most of my time in, in EOD is uh, bomb disposal, explosive ordnance disposal, bomb disposal. So I did high research in bomb disposal. So I, I was part of the army underwater bomb disposal team, the airborne, so the, you know, the, the para bomb disposal team. Uh, and also we did high research in various places, including being the high research um, element of the maritime terrorist uh, unit. Uh, so yeah, that was kind of, you know, two hours back and forth from various hot places. Um, and then that was kind of it, 10 years. There we go. And, you mentioned you mentioned zoology and archaeology hmm. have given you advantage. Now, yeah. like you might be the first person that I've had in the podcast that said my like um, my education really helped me out later down in the career because I think most people are doing it to um, to be expedient rather than something that's individually meaningful to them. It's like, why? How's that helped so, you? So, yes, the thing you never know. You never know, right? You know, like study maths, be like, oh, you'll never use maths and physics in life. And then I end up using it all the time in, in technical diving, calculating gas mixes and all that stuff. Like, you know, if you're not a massive physics geek as a technical diver, you're probably going to kill yourself. Um, so it was more because from when I left the forces studying expeditions and writing articles and making little films and that stuff, I say making little films literally on camcorders because back then, you know, we didn't have GoPros, we didn't have phones with with, with cameras. Um, and I and then I was starting supporting a lot of documentaries from a sort of safety point of view, the dive supervisor, climbing supervisor, whatever it is. And then I got in front of camera. And as the adventure guy, because, you know, having these technical skills, but I found that having the degree in zoology and then eventually a master's in archaeology helped a lot because I was on um you know science programs a lot of wildlife programs um history programs and i could bring something kind of academic so it definitely that helped me get tv work um uh which was ma- in the main because of the technical sort of adventure skills that i had but it was uh helped by the fact that oh, okay cool so like beyond bionic for example the thing i spoke about the start 
it's great because I, I, you know, I've got a reasonable uh, understanding of kind of engineering and physics, but obviously having a degree in zoology, they're like, cool, you've got credibility. You can stand in front of kids and talk about wildlife. And although you do not need an academic degree or that to be a incredibly knowledgeable on a subject, I know plenty of people who've got no academic qualifications, but in certain subjects, they are f- like professors. As far as the BBT were concerned at the time, that was that, that having that academic background helped sort of seal the deal. You mentioned to jump all over the place. You mentioned dive course. Yes. What's so arduous about it? It's because they beast you. They thrash you. The army dive course is famous. But the Navy do a dive course and you spend six weeks, you know, diving. Uh, whereas <laughs> the army do, you do a little bit of diving and you just do loads of running and press-ups. They just thrash you with an inch of your life. Um that's probably what is mostly because of the the physical element rather than the diving itself. Although we do some like longer dives, like they do endurance dives, which is like hours and hours. You'll just you'll be underwater for hours doing navigation. You pop up, you change set, and you can you a fresh scuba set on, jump back in, and you crack on for hours and hours. You know you're cold and wet, and they test all that stuff. But I'm I'm a believer in that. Um, you know it's it's you, you, it's a bit of a struggle to find the meeting when you're in it, but um, you know. It whittles out the rope coilers. So on the dive course, everything in diving weighs a ton, right? Especially in military and commercial diving. So you've got twin sets, they weigh a ton. The weights, belts, they weigh a ton. If you're wearing big helmets, they weigh a ton. The hydraulic pack, which is a sort of massive generator that that, that powers the underwater tools you might use. So like cut, underwater chainsaws, for example, or underwater cutting tools and all that stuff weighs a ton. Um if you're using surface demand stuff, the big giant bottles of gas on the surface, the J bottles that sound like six feet tall, again, they, they weigh an absolute ton. Everything was a ton. So when you're setting the site up or stripping it down, the lightest thing on there is is the ropes, okay, used for your shot line or, or, or safety lines or whatever it is. But everyone wants to look busy. So the 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 last thing to be set up and the last thing to be stripped out is ropes. Everything's done, then you start coiling the ropes up. If somebody stood around coiling ropes while everybody else is lifting everything else, they're clearly just trying to look busy, but they're not actually doing any proper work. Hence, they're called rope coilers, which is a you know a derogatory term in the or was in the world of diving. So the this. The, the other thing is that, that diving can be hard in the in the forces. You know, sometimes we were required to hump our kit across because w- the army is responsible for everything from the high water mark up, basically rivers, lakes, sewers, that sort of stuff. So often these things would be would be remote. You couldn't take a boat to them, but the navy can. So sometimes you have to man pack your stuff, you know, across the hills to get to somewhere, and then you'd be diving through the night. And there was obviously no not not the same support you get on a ship, which is you know effectively a big floating house. You've got you can come in the water, get hot cup of tea, hot water in your bed, have a shower, all that stuff. You don't have that when you're in the field. So you have to weed out the people who will not be capable of doing the job at its worst um and also the people who are team players who will not be coiling ropes while everyone else is um you know humping the heavy kit so the, the, all that all that sort of physical thrashings every morning pt is is it has a purpose and, and it helps to bond the team together as well nice nice so you finish up dive school mm. What happens then? So then, then I pretty much went from there. Shortly after that, went to P Company, which is the the, the para trooper selection course. Did that, um, which you know, again, it's just being thrashed all day, every day um, for weeks and weeks and weeks. But it's, it's a relatively simple course, and I and I have to say that 
it's it was run certainly when I was there, the, the DS, the, the, the instructors, it was a very mature, grown-up attitude. It wasn't like basic training. It was and because there's a mix of ranks there. Um, and it's a volunteer course, you know, no one's forcing you. Again, with that's with the dive course, that's with everything. Like, you know, I've got chronic injuries now. I've picked up in the force of bad knees, bad back, all that's so my back's still problematic. But I don't I don't hold the forces or any kind of department there within responsible because no one forced me to sign up. And no one forced me to volunteer for dive course, and no one forced me to volunteer for P Company and, and anything else that I did. Um, you know, it's not their fault; it's mine. It's entirely my fault. So yeah, um, and and it was it was quite maturely done. It was in the sense that you turned up and went, right, guys, this morning we will go and do X. You know, and then we'll finish that. You'll have lunch, then we'll do Y. And if it's like right, we're going to do a ten mile run, the PTI in the lead will set the pace. As long as you finish the 10 mile run with the PTI, then, you know, this afternoon, you'll come back and do whatever we're doing this afternoon. Same with the weights, like, right, you will carry 36 pounds plus weapon and helmet, whatever it is, what it is and they want you to, the way you kit, and if it's over, they're like, take it out. That's not what we asked you to do, you know. Mm-hmm. This is it. This is, and it, it's, it's pretty clear cut, you know, and that's why I always surprised when people failed because, you know, like but on the first day they do they do a se- succession of tests on the first day and it's just to weed out the people who right should not be there and a significant proportion like 25 percent of the people fail on the first day and these these tests are, are written down and sent to you months in advance yeah. it's not difficult it's like guys if you couldn't do them why, why did you even turn up like wh- why why would you be here and not be able to do the most basic test mm-hmm. that you knew but so i was also quite surprised by um by that but um you know it's 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 relatively easy it, well easy but it, but it's simple it's a bit like um recently i've joined the british stunt register which is it's actually it's incredibly hard to get into the british stunt register but it's simple i tip all this it's simple it's not easy but it's simple because the british stunt register he is you know he has all the disciplines pick six get good pass these six tests and you're in that's it. It's simple. Now, it, it takes years and years and years to get good enough to pass those six tests. However, you know, so it's not easy. Much like P Company, it's not easy, but it is simple. This is what you will have, you'll be required to do. If you can if you can do these things, then you will pass. If you can't do these things, then you will not pass. So turn up being able to do these things. Yeah. I remember looking around in Limston on PRMC. Yeah. And you jump up to that bar, yeah. you hang from it, and people start doing pull-ups. And like, wait, like you've got to wait for the beep. Like we've been, <laughs> you've like been told this a hundred times today, yeah. let alone for the thousands of times like before when you've been thinking not to do it. It's kind of like, how did you get to this point? And yeah, well, um, but I've, I, um, I did a PMC as well, and uh, and you get guys there who can't do pull-ups. You're like, but yeah. you were sent the same pack as I was. Was said on day on on you know on the first day of the two or three days you're there you would require to do the usmc as it was there but don't still see when mm-hmm. you went through which is that da 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 here is the minimum requirement from these exercises mm-hmm. i can't remember what it was it's like is it minimum six pull-ups or whatever it was yeah six or eight yeah, something like that not, again not not actually mm-hmm. that much it's not they're not, not asking for like bang out 50 pull-ups in a one it's like six or eight, or eight, eight pull-ups um but there's guys tell me you can't do more than two you're like what what were you thinking 
What did you think that yeah. you you just cough up in the day and somehow pull out the bag? I, just, yeah. I don't know. I'd go from zero pull ups to twelve in one yeah, day. Yeah, and the approach I took back then, and still even today, like when I did some some of the tests I did for the for the British Stunt stuff, it was like whatever the level required is, you need to be better than that. You need to be at yeah. a passable level on a bad day. So you can turn up, and unless you're having an f- absolutely fucking terrible day, which can happen, and sometimes you've got to take that on the chin, you're going to pass, you know. So if the requirement is eight pull-ups, you know, I'm like, cool. I want to be going there, being able to do 16 mm-hmm. or 20, so that yeah. even if they put those at the very end of a really tiring day, I can still smash out eight no matter how bad I am. You know, um, yeah. same with the, the last, the big, the, the biggest, I think the, for me, the hardest discipline that I did for the, for the stunt was, was was the horse test, the, the stunt rider, rider horse test. Um, but, and there were some people there who clearly had put in minimal effort. And you're like, you're going to have to have the best day. You, 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 might, you're, you are capable of passing, but only on your best day. That's a very dangerous approach to take. Yeah, I'm always of the opinion, and it's like, of course, I sometimes fall short of the standard. I'm not by any means perfect, but like, I want to be able to pass it if I've got flu, or if I want to be able to pass it if I've just like, if I've got some sort of niggling injury yeah. that's going to kick me in the dick. So, you know, like, if you turn up there and you, you broke one of your arms, then okay, fair play. So, you know, if you have a terrible day, then you've had a terrible day. But as you say, mm-hmm. if you haven't slept well the day before, or, you know, you're tired, or you've got a bit of a niggling injury, like one of your elbows is a bit sore, or whatever else it is, maybe even a, a bicep injury or something, I don't know, but you can still put that, well, for the horse test, again, I, I was definitely capable of feeling that test if I had a really bad day. Mm-hmm. But I was also like, However, I'm going to have to be unlucky. Like, unless I have a really bad day, I'm going to pass this. You know, mm-hmm. you need to over-prepare. And as I said, it was Hark's back said at the start about bringing your A-game. You know, in things like cave diving, cave diving is not dangerous if it's done correctly in the sense that caves are actually very predictable and stable environments. People die in cave diving because something they did or they didn't do. Caves don't, and underwater caves don't kill people. They, they, they do it to themselves. In most cases, I mean, there is probably extreme examples, but in the vast, vast majority of cases, that, that's what happens. Um, it's it's And it's pretty binary. Like skydiving and climbing, for example, there's a graduation of potential outcomes in the sense that, you know, you can you can have a bad landing or you can come off a cliff and you can, you know, break an ankle, break a leg, uh, you know, break your back, be in a coma, die. Cave diving, no one gets injured cave diving. It either all goes well and you come out, it goes badly and you fix it and you come out completely binary or it goes badly you don't fix it and you die you know it is zero and ones um but so you have to bring your a game but with the same token that that a game isn't just about on the day it's the preparation beforehand Mm -hmm. and it's and it's so that if i'm if i haven't brought my a game if i'm if i'm on you know my bc even d game i'm not going to die because i've prepared for that because sat back in my in my house, from a laptop, in my pants, my mug of tea, I've been like, right, what happens if on that day I'm not I'm not at my A game if I'm you know if I'm if I'm kind of failing the tests, how do I build in redundancy or or backup plans to make sure that I still get out in one piece because that's the priority. If you think back to your like I'm gonna say career but multiple careers, if you think back to that, what was your biggest personal challenge you had to come up and to give you some time to um to think like for me it's always switching on aggression so in the military it's like i'm 
very good at fears, like I can keep calm in difficult situations, I can like figure out maps and all that kind of stuff. But like switching on the aggression was a thing that I had to learn to do. And it even applies to um in business today. It's like, okay, I've got to switch on being assertive and aggressive and embracing that confrontation. So it's like something I'm continually working on. Like, did you have something like that where it's like, okay, this is a personal um deficit that I've got to make up? Um I, I never suffer from that problem be- more because I I mean, I can be as aggressive as everybody else, but but I think I was always quite clinical about my thinking. So when when I was doing stuff, it, even even I was you know getting some rounds down back at someone, I went fairly okay. Forget everything else. Let's just focus mm-hmm. on this and kind of you know reduce the heart rate and do the job. You know, mm-hmm. think very very in very small terms. Don't think about consequences. Mm-hmm. Just just do the job that's in front of you. Um, you know. What I suffered from a lot, and still to this day, I think, but I am bolstered by people I've spoken to who have done some incredible stuff, and they confess that, that they're in a similar position. And it's imposter syndrome. Just a quick favor to ask. If you love the show and you think it may help someone else in the world, then head to wherever you listen to The Freedom Project and leave a five-star review and maybe even share it with some friends. It really does help me, and it helps the show too. I can continue to get fantastic guests on the show, it reaches more people, and it makes me feel great too. So I would be enormously grateful if you could leave a five-star review and share any episodes of the podcast that you love. You know, like, I, and I think that's one of the things that held me back in the forces, that, you know, as an officer, I was always like, I shouldn't be here, you know, because the guys that I kind of related to were the lads you know who who joined from the council houses in scotland or north england or london or or whatever and um i always kind of felt that that i was gonna get rumbled that i shouldn't be here you know um which uh, it's a shame because i I think i could have done a lot well i I could have done a better job if i'd if i'd been less hampered or hamstrung by that and then you know in, in the tell i often take to piss at myself about the tv presenting like with this accent i shouldn't really i shouldn't really be on telly <laughs> and the only reason i do it is because they wheel me in when they need a cave diver or a skydiver because can't find anybody else um and i think that's true I, I genuinely think that's true that's you know it's not even just self-deprecating and it's not even probably imposter syndrome. i think that's genuinely true um which i'm fine with it's like you know i've kind of reached my ceiling i'm never going to be you know a, a, a global success on, on TV one chat show just because it's just not me. Um, and with the stunts, you know, you, you, you've got your ears of specialization, but you know, you're doing some fight stuff. And there's a guy there who got into stunts because he's like a five times world champion kickboxer, like martial arts since he was 10 years old. Or um, I was out recently on a job with a guy called Mark Higgins uh, and it was doing some driving stuff, you know, and Mark, is a kind of world rally champion many times over all this sort of stuff and frankly even in the world of stunt driving where some world-class people that man can can drive a car jesus that man can drive and you sort of say this to him you go okay i'm i'm never there's no world where i'm gonna be this, this level so and I, I do sometimes find that that and that because that affects your confidence. Sometimes it affects whether you say yes or put yourself forward for opportunities. So, um, and even now, I think, oh, you know, you don't be rubbish at stuff and this this imposter syndrome and and, and perhaps it's a holdover from from um, doing these pursuits where you have to bring your A game. You you worry that if you 
try or do something and you only get your B game, well, you shouldn't be there in the first place. Whereas your B game might be better than most people's A games, but but from a personal point of view, you always think you you think you always have to be really good at everything and perfect at everything, and you know. So, I think that's that's something that I still struggle with. Uh, but as I say, that, that in recent years, when I've spoken to people who have done some impressive things in their life, both military and stunts and, and adventure world, and they sort of confess, yeah, I still. And you, and you think, how the hell can you suffer from posture syndrome? You know, look at all things you've done, and they're like, yeah, but I would say the same about you. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe. Um, so yeah, yeah, the imposter syndrome one's an interesting one. I've got a bit of a theory about it that it's possibly a a prerequisite for success to have that. I'm not good enough, so I need to work harder. Yeah, and I won't be good enough, so I need to work even harder than that. It's just learning the relationship where it doesn't cripple you is the is the way to go with it or learning to see it objectively um, over time. Yeah, it's, it's, I think, you know, it's like a lot of these things, it's uh, it's definitely better to have that than the opposite, which is like, I'm awesome yeah. when you're not. And I suppose in some ways, like you've, you've mentioned there, it harkens back to this idea about about passing, you know, a test on, the, on your worst day. If you're like, I'm not good, I'm not good enough, I've got, I've got to be, you know, what if I bring my, my worst day, I've got to be good enough. So you you over-prepare. Now, you could argue, yeah, that's not very efficient. You've put all this extra time and effort when you didn't need to. But I'd rather err up than down, which is not put enough effort in and fail. Yeah. See, so li- I'd say you'd live um, by society's standard, a pretty unconventional life. You kind of you're doing some interesting jobs. You've grown up in an interesting place. You've um, you've moved around. I'm guessing a ton. What's the upside of that? But also, what's the price you pay for those kind of choices? I mean, the upside is that you have a sort of you degree of freedom to sort of pick and choose stuff and and like say move around. I think it gives you a different outlook on life. Definitely to realize that the conventional life, nine to five, you know, pay away your job. And I'm not doubting that. But a lot of people, people go, oh, you know, people should quit their job and become adventurers. And I'm just like, no, no, no. A, I don't need the competition, quite frankly. And secondly, it's, it's not right. And I, sometimes I'm envious because the downside is that you both chronologically and financially, it's massively unpredictable and unstable. So, you know, 2018 was a classic year when I had a couple of, I had a Nat Geo series and a BBC series all happening. Commissioners changed and the channels, they both got binned. Boom. Suddenly, I'm pretty much out of work for a year. And you and and you and you never know when it's going to end. It might be forever. Like looking back now, it's easy to speak about because you go, well, 2019, the phone went and one thing led to another and I ended up working on 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 a film quite a big film and it was really cool and kind of changed changed certainly a direction in life but you know even now you are self-employed so, and, and that's why it's good to have a different the adventure sort of area whether it be the documentaries or doing sponsorship stuff um, or making my own content or the pure stunts stuff having those two um, you know two different areas is good because for example so I don't if your audience might not know but so the uh, actors and writers in the states in the america have gone on strike which means basically no movies no big series your amazon netflix are being made until the strike ends which could be next year so a lot of my friends who are pure stuntmen they're potentially out of work until 
until the strike's end, till till next year. Which was I'm like, thank God, I can, I can flip across and start, you know, doing some adventure projects and kind of generating some some work and some money in that way. But you never know, you know, you can have a really good year, but then the, you know, I, 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 and you can be really popular. I'm so busy, I've been, I've been busy for months and months and months, and then suddenly the phone stops ringing, and you never know when it's ringing again. And timetable wise, like you know, you get you get phone calls for jobs. Can you can you come to Pinewood Studios tomorrow? Or the adventure stuff, if it's if it's weather dependent, okay, we're we're going to go and do it next week. Or um, I'm filming a new thing for Nat Geo, starting September all the way through to December, um, and we still don't know. We've got six different countries to go to. We still don't have a clue when we're going to these places. So, if you want a stable life, both financially and from a calendar point of view, m- mine is not the one to choose. Uh, and the, the the sad fact is, I'm a massive control freak. I love to know what I'm doing in weeks and months to come. I, w- I love to have a level of security in my finances, which is why this is a terrible job for me. And in, th- in, th- in, th- in those ways, like you- you'd think that that I'm the exact opposite. People assume that oh, I must be really cool with it. But what I would finally say on the subject is that being self-employed, having self-generate work, also on a cushion in the bank, never really knowing the phone's going to stop ringing or when it hasn't rung, when it'll ever ring again, was, and my, my wife's a jazz musician, which is, you know, that's that's less reliable than stunt, than um, the adventure work. But, uh, <laughs> you know, at least one of us should have a proper job. But anyway, but when COVID struck, we were like, cool, we got this covered. My friends of ours who have got like normal jobs we're like, oh my god, we could be out of work for you know three months, and we were like, yeah, we call that winter. Um, and, we're all, and if it's only three months, cool. That's a that's a, we've been out of work for like almost twelve months. That's an easy stint. We had a cushion in the bank. We've got very low overheads, small mortgage, all that stuff. Because we so we've basically been inverted commas in training for COVID for like the last ten years. Yeah. So um, you know, it 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 made us it made us more robust. Um, for for some of the sort of foibles of of life, how do you spend your time when you are in those downtimes? They are certainly since March they've been very very rare. Um, you know, we're, we're doing this podcast, and because this was like the one day I'm at home, I, I was away Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday working, um, and then I'm off tonight, and I'm back on Saturday, then off again Sunday to Bulgaria for a week, and then then so which is a which can be tiring but it's a good thing again anyone out there self-employed will know you don't complain about being too busy because the the alternative is the phone's not ringing and you're not paying the mortgage and your kids are going hungry um but what I, I've learned to do is make more time for the family, like almost have, have the t- timetable in time at home mm. because I like being at home. That's the thing. You know, sometimes I go away with people, um, you know, crew and that, and they're like, oh, great, it's great to be away from the kids and the wife and kids for a, for a few weeks. Like, no, 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 I, I love my house. And I love, I, my, I like hanging out with my kids and my missus. So I, I actually, um, you know, I, I try. And we do a lot of camping. Um, that's one of the things that we do um, a lot when I've got some downtime. We take the kids camping. It's, it's good for them to be out camping. You know, I think it teaches them a lot, but also it's it's super focused and concentrated contact time because if we take the motorhome away for, you know, a week in France or two weeks in France or a week in Scotland, wherever it is, we are 24-7. We're sleeping in the same room effectively. 
cooking the same room. We're, we're together as, as the, the four of us, twenty four seven, which is good. Which is good. I almost feel like that seasonality is a more healthy way to spend time with your loved ones and also devote to work because you have like a very distinct purpose. It's almost like deploying. It's like, okay, I'm here for six months or I'm here for however long. Like this is my job and now I'm home and this is my job. Yeah. It's like, yeah, short-term touring, Uh, but it's better because, you know, you'll do a week, two weeks, three weeks, kind of really do away away for more than three weeks nowadays. Um, And yeah, and I, you know, people say, oh God, you never see your kids. And like, I'm pretty sure I probably spend more time with my kids over the space of a year than most people do because some of my friends who've got, you know, normal jobs, they'll they'll leave early in the morning, park late at night. So they're, they're not they're not like spending much time Monday to Friday with their kids. And yes, maybe at weekends. Yeah. But at weekends they've got things to do as well, you know. Fix the car, get a haircut, do the garden. They've got job they've got you know, sort of jobs to do, whereas I can do them. I, I get up no idea how people with, with proper jobs get a haircut because, you know, they must have to go weekends, but it's really busy. I, I don't I don't really know when how people manage things like that. Um <laughs> I'm glad we've got the, both the same concerns. Yeah, like, I, I always think that when I'm getting my haircut, it's like I turn up like 10 a.m. Yeah, on, on, on a Tuesday. Like, when do other people do this? Yeah, it's like everyone can't get their haircut on a Saturday because there's not enough hairdressers to, to deal with everybody. They're all yeah. shut on Sunday, and there's a thousand people waiting. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know how people who work Monday to Friday get get a haircut. Um, there we go. People like, spit like what? <laughs> you fool! Um, so. Um, where were we? Yeah, because I say it, so we all we'll like two weeks in Easter holidays. We're going to take the kids to Holland and, and paddle along the canals, and and then the summertime we'll try and do stuff. Um, we'll, we'll hopefully go away for Christmas again for a few weeks. So we spend a lot of contact time like that. And as I say, when we are we camping, for example, that's it twenty four twenty four seven. You're in this. You're in the same room effectively as the kids. Um, and it's good because it does, it kind of forces us to all rub along. You know, you can't escape the kids and the kids can't escape us. So it, as a family, we're forced to kind of work as a team because if you're living in a little yeah. um, in, in a little box for, for two weeks, then, you know, you need to learn how to get along. Mm-hmm. To jump about all over the place. Mm, no, go for it. What, why is the horse riding element so challenging in stunts? Um, well, I suppose it depends really on your background. I mean, I know people who've done that test who've been riding since they were five and then just rocked up and, you know, pissed, pissed mm-hmm. it. Uh, but mm-hmm. as a non-rider, it is quite, quite a high standard. And, and like a lot of these things in stunts, like, you know, you've, you've got to get to a certain level of martial arts skill, and that usually takes a minimum of three years. Um, the, the gymnastics test. If you went to gymnastics again, if you had never done gymnastics before, it will take you years to get to that level. The reason it was it was hard for me was because the other disciplines that I did, I was already either good at or or, or reasonable at. Um, so the horse test was the was the kind of and and it had it's got to be quite difficult as well. You have to put the effort in. Um. People who can just who can invent commas ride like they're okay, they're kind of hobby riders fail. You know, you need to be better than that. Uh, you know, the horse, the sort of the last element of the horse test is you do you jump you jump fences bareback, um, and most most people who ride for as a hobby don't ride bareback ever. So not only do you have to ride bareback, you have to be you have to jump bareback as well. Um, but also, I. Th- 
I put more effort into that than anything else. So because I, I could do everything else at a reasonable level anyway before I then started training up just for the final bits and bobs. The horse test, I again, my, my approach is different from other people's, but I'm like, you know, focus on the goal. Like if that's what you you know you don't don't pick away at it, just smash it out. So, um. I took six months off. I did a, a big job for film, a skydive job, which was quite well paid. It's a stunt job. And that gave us enough money to survive for six months. Uh, because as I said before, we've got pretty low overheads, you know, mortgage, food, and basic bills. It's, it's not, not, we're pretty, we're pretty sort of low lifestyle. Um, and that's because of the life we had before, which where money was up and down. And even then it wasn't, you know, I was making a living as before I tell you as professional kind of skydiver, cave diver, climber. It's great. It's a great life, but you don't get any much. Um, and I basically lived at my local stables. So I'd go there every morning or, or f- five days a week, every morning um, and, and help out, you know, muck at the horses, learn about tack, which you don't need to do that much for the horse test. But I was like, the way to do this is immersive. You'll be a better rider if you understand horses. I even did a, I even did an equine first aid course. Not required, but again, you know, like we said before, train hard, fight easy, you know, go above and beyond. Um, and then I spend like three or four hours a day riding, which to go from nothing to riding like, you know, 20 hours a week. Uh, well, for a start, Jesus Christ, it, it hurts. It's the last few weeks. Yeah, I bet. Jesus. I bet. Whoa. It's, uh, it's pretty taxing. Um, but my instructor was really good. She, she you know, she, she like runs the stables. And um, I was like, look, this is what I want. This is what I need to be able to do. Um, and and she was like, "Cool, right? You're gonna fall off, but you seem game." So I was, I was never really consolidating. It was like, right, keep keep pushing, and you have to. You like almost every single lesson was outside my comfort zone because I start to get good at something, you just push on to the next thing. So, which is why I think you know, I, over the space of six months, I became really good. But it was physically and mentally taxing because you're just mm-hmm. you're stressed because you know it's never really that enjoyable because you're just constantly operating outside your comfort zone you never really get a chance to mm-hmm. although i did enjoy the jumping even when i wasn't really good at it just because it's quite exhilarating um and then i went down to train at a stables in rickmansworth where that's one of the big sort of horse stunt families in the uk that did the, the horse stunts they they, they do, do they offer some training as well so I went down there and I just stayed in the Premier Inn nearby. And again, I went in to see them because that was more the stunt riding. So you, you could do a little bit of bareback in the normal stables, but if you want to ride around with sword and shields and in big groups and and do stuff like that, then you need, you need stunt horses to train with. So I went and basically lived with them for, for um, a month. And then they said to me, well, when are you thinking of taking the horse test? So maybe, you know, six months' time. And they're like, nah, you're good enough now. You know, as long as you have a really bad day, you, you can you can pass it. Now, again, maybe going back to this, this imposter syndrome idea, I was like, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. Like, yeah, you are. Mm-hmm. But when you, when you get someone like that, who's that experienced, who, you know, that's all they do is stunt riding and that's what they've done since they're two years old, it tells you, you know, yeah, you should pass, you're good enough. Mm-hmm. That you go, okay, maybe, maybe you're right. Um, but yeah, that's how I did it. I was just like, right, this is it. We fucking, we live and we breathe horse riding for six months. Um, and you get good. Um, I'm probably not. How did you deal with that? That six months of okay, I'm getting to a new level and moving up to the next thing. Getting to next level and moving on to the next thing. Because like, if I think to, I know to give you an example, learning climbing. I would, 
I sat quite calm. I really enjoyed the, oh, I've learned to climb a 510B. Like, so what's that? A 6A. And I was like, oh, that's really comfortable. I'll cruise those for quite a consistent amount of time, enjoy the fact that I can do it and then move on to the next. And then, but if you want to learn rapidly, you have to spend six months, a year, whatever, in that constant growth zone. Yeah, it's, um, it's not necessarily enjoyable. I have to say that because you see, just constantly, like you don't get a chance to rest. It's like like you're constantly running. It's pretty exhausting. Also, the thing is that I've, I've learned quite a lot of new skills over the years. Like I mean, diving when I was a kid, but climbing when I was a kid, but skydiving when I was an adult. Uh, like I, mm-hmm. I did paramotoring a few years ago. I don't do much of it, but I did it. And these things tend to go. I think this is common for most people, but it's for myself. Is that you get accelerated growth at the start mm-hmm. and then you plateaus out you get frustrated mm-hmm. because you're not learning and then eventually you start picking up again growth but at, at a less rapidly and you chip away until you get to the point where you need to be and that doesn't stop me getting fucking frustrated and throwing my teddy and all that sort of stuff when i was riding but i could recognize it like i did really at the start and then you get and you'd be going hour after hour day after day for the for, for weeks on this plateau going this is fucking rubbish. Like I'm just not. It's bad enough when I'm making progress. I'm making zero progress. What's the point? You know, that's the sort of you know the caveman in you is going. Oh, this is rubbish. And then you get the other part of your brain is going. No, no, no. You've been here before. This is how it goes. Mm. It doesn't mean it's any less frustrating or any less annoying. However, this is just the phase that you're in, and it will pass. And how you deal with it is that you turn up again tomorrow, and that's it. And you think again, like I mentioned before, you think, you think small stuff. You know, you plan strategically and you act tactically. And for those who are not in the military, you don't know what I'm talking about. You 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 make a big plan. So the big plan was in six months' time or nine months, whatever it was, I'm going to pass the British Stunt Rider Stunt Riders Horse Test. That's the big plan. That's the goal. That's the that's the point. That's the mission at the end of the road. However, let's forget about that. And how do I do that? I do that by by you know this is my long term my also my training plan. Cool. That's all done and dusted. You know what you got to do. Forget all that. Just focus on turning up and just get literally getting back on the horse. Um, and that's it. So, you know, you'd come back, I'd come back. My missus was like, always routine. I should run me a hot bath because you get back at like in the evening and I've been working all day and then riding all day. And I was my, my, my adductors were like rock solid, so cramped up, you know, my back, lower back was really sore and I was just stiff and um, go back in, sit in the bath, eat a load of food, go to bed up the next morning. And it was, this was through the winter. So it was like pitch black drive to the stables, get out, you know, start start mucking out the stables. Um, and it's a bit like physical training and that, you know, you just need to turn up and you keep chipping away. You keep chipping away. It sounds cliched, but the old, you know, the, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. Mm-hmm. It also continues with a series of single steps. And that's just, you know, you just sort of like, I, wouldn't, I wasn't going, oh my God, can I keep this for six months? Like, cool, get up tomorrow and go to the stables. That's all you got. To forget everything else. That's all you got to do. That one thing. That's all you got to do. Is there anything you look at in the adventure sport world that you think, "Fuck that!" Like that is, I'm not into that. Um, I mean, there's stuff. There's a lot of stuff that I I, I can't do because I think the skills. I'd like. Oh, that, that'd be amazing mm-hmm. to have those sort of skills. I haven't got them. I will never have them. Therefore, you know, that's something that I would do. A lot of the motorbike stuff. 
um, you know, see something good. And I know quite a few stunt guys have come from a, a motocross or, or that sort of trick riding background, you know, the, the sort of nitro circus style, mm. massive ramps and motorbikes doing like triple somersaults. Um, I can't do that. I mean, I, I've got a bike license. I can ride a motorbike. But again, mm. there's guys I've worked with who have like won world championships at motocross or enduro or, or, or MotoGP, whatever, who, who now work in stunt world, you know, so I can, because people do ask, oh, can, mate, can, can you ride a motorbike? And you go, what do you mean? Can, can I ride a motorbike or can I ride a motorbike? Because I have a license, but I can't yes. ride ride a motorbike. You know, I can't do a ramp and a triple somersault like some of the boys can. So, um, you know, and, and being around them kind of makes, I'm I'm very happy about coming forward and going, nope, like, oh, right, we've got a guy. Can you ride a motorbike? Yes, I can. Cool. It's this massive stunt up this ramp, and then you've got to land here. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not the guy for that, mate. Not the guy for that. Like, I'll have a go at a lot of things, but it doesn't matter how brave you are. If you haven't got the skills, you're not going to be, you can't cuff that. You can't cuff that. Mm-hmm. Um, same with the driving stuff. I said I was sat, sat next to Mark for a few weeks, Mark Higgins, uh, who can, Jesus, that guy can drive a car. Again, you look. You, it, it was a lesson in humility. Like, I, I, I do a little bit of stunt driving, but at a low level, you know, you search the mark and go, cool, I will never be that good. So when they're asking to do like some hardcore, some other stuff that he was doing, I, I was sat in the passenger seat just going, yeah, there's, 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 it doesn't matter how balls you are, how committed you are, I do not possess the intuitive skill that he's taken like 40 years to accumulate um, because that's all Mark does. He's not a stunt performer, stunt man. He just does driving. That's his thing. Um, you know, I would, I, I'll, I'll never be that, but uh, that's cool. You know, I'll, I'll yeah. sit the past you and yeah, enjoy the ride. Lovely stuff. What, have you got any personal projects that are sitting up? Like aside from work stuff, is there anything like, uh, I want to climb this or I want to go here or experience this? Um, so I'm hoping to qualify for the world skydiving world championships again next year. Um, I've got a cave diving project in France. For, so uh, I'm sponsored by Panerai, the watch company, and I do certain diving projects for them. So I suppose it is kind of work, but they, they kind of let me just do one thing. And this is a solo cave diving project. So I'll dive in um, with a load of camping kit. So uh, you, you dive in, swim like two kilometers underwater in this, in this cave, you surface, you've then got to hump all this kit through a dry cave into another underwater cave, dive again into a third, sorry, fourth, but then another dry cave where I'll camp because I've got a lot of camping gear in a, in a, in an aluminium tube that's sealed. So it's, you know, I can take it underwater and it doesn't get, it's like a aluminium metal dry bag, basically. Um, and I'll camp there for, for sort of three or four days. And from there, I'll go out and do other little cave diving projects in other connected areas and then dive out. So I'll be kind of on my own underground, stuck underwater in the dark for three or four days, but at least. at least. Um, so that's happening at some point this autumn. It's just, mm-hmm. like I said before, my, my schedule is a bit of a game of Tetris. So it's, it's but, but fortunately, and that's one of the reasons that it's a solo project, is that it means it's got maximum flexibility. So with this Nat Geo mm-hmm. thing, if they say, cool, we're filming in Finland this week, and then two weeks later we're going to film in, in Poland, I'm like, cool, I can fit my French Caveman project in then, and I can just go and do it. I'm not relying or letting anyone else down if I need to shift things around. Got you. What excites you about spending how many days in the, in the dark by yourself? Sure, three or four. Yeah. 
And what excites you about that? Absolutely nothing. Um, it's just, well, it's an interest. I mean, I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying it's going to be pleasant. Like what's pleasant is, you know, sitting in, in the forest, you know, with my, kid, my missing kids, with them sword fighting and me, you know, drinking a Negroni. That's, that's, that's pleasant. Um, the, but it's, it, I think, It'll be interesting to do just to see how how what 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 happens and how I cope, you know. And it'll be it'll be interesting to test myself. I've not done something that sort of testing like this year, and it's also one of those things that's good to have done. Is it is it type two fun they call it? But it's yeah. one of those things that yeah, I just had a conversation with someone about yeah, that. that yeah, that may not be great to do, but it'll be great mm-hmm. to have done because when I find when I do these sort of things, I take the world for granted much less and unfortunately it doesn't stay with me it's like temporary wisdom but i'll mm-hmm. come back just being in, a, in my bed is is amazing drinking water mm-hmm. eating nice food seeing my missus and kids mm-hmm. like the simple simple things in life hot food clean water a toilet a bed mm-hmm. suddenly you, you realize how important they are and unfortunately you forget as why well. you, you got to keep doing these things to remind yourself i also think it's human nature certainly within Meals that we are, from an evolutionary point of view, designed for challenges, you, you know, yeah. f- and, and that there's a very good evolutionary reason for that, you know, as hunters, as protectors, however you want to put it. So, so it makes evolutionary sense from both an individual but also a sort of community point of view uh, for having those sort of traits. And therefore, if we don't go out and slay dragons, we kind of feel that something's missing. And some people don't realize something's missing until they do stuff. It's why often what you find is people get into these adventure sports or expeditions or whatever it is, and they become addictive. Like very few people do an expedition and only do one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but by the same token, so the, the search and rescue that I'm involved with, um, there's some guys there who are hugely committed to do a lot more than I do. And that's their purpose. That's their thing. That's their, what they are, they are challenged by. The, you know, Paige goes off at two o'clock in the morning, and they're off searching for vulnerable people in the forests. Um, mm. You know, people have gone missing or whatever, or, or unfortunately, sometimes dealing with with, with, with bodies. Um, you know, that's their dragon, and and that you know, that it's it's an important part of their life, and I think they can help. Bizarrely, we, we had a conversation recently um, within the with the organisation about about you know potential P- PTSD because if you if you are having to deal with you know, suicide victims and you know, bodies, what effect that has on you. Uh, and I brought up a point, um, and I, of course, I've not to back this up, to be honest, but but I said, look, yes, that, that that's definitely we need to consider. We need to, we need to look at how we, how we help our volunteers, our, our, our team members. But also, we need to appreciate that being part of this organization and, and doing what it does will help people in the sense that. I'm sure there's people there with certain problems that are better for having purpose and going out and doing rescues and having that, having, you know, having, having something like that can actually, you know, and, and, it, and, it, and it definitely helped like during, during COVID, it definitely helped me. It's like, cool, I've got, I've got a point. Like I'm not just doing stuff for myself. And that's probably the reason he's got involved with the search and rescues because I think after left mm-hmm. the, leaving the forces, I thought, am I, am I selfish now? Am I, I mean, the forces, you're, you're a very, very, very small cog in a big wheel, but you hope you're doing something to make, you know, I don't want to say too good, I mean, the world a slightly better place. Um, 
so it's nice to have a purpose that that kind of fills a hole, um, which I think can often be missing from modern life these days because we've just got it too easy. Yeah. Yeah, he has a why he can bear almost anyhow, right? Mm. Have you read um, or have you heard of Pat Tillman? No, I've not. Okay, so he was a NFL player on a $4 million a year like contract, had everything going for him. Um, and on 9-11, he, or in the months after, he decided to join the US Rangers okay. and deployed to Afghanistan, was killed in, um, killed in Afghanistan. Um or he yeah, deployed to Iraq, deployed, um, and then to Afghanistan was killed in Afghan. Turned out it was fratricide, and he got it got covered up by the U.S. government to a horrendous degree. Amazing book, um, "Where Men Win Glory" by John Cracker. But that idea of like, okay, I've had a very comfortable life. I've had all this going for me, but I'm going to do something that's far more purposeful and just sign up as a grunt in the U.S. Army, like will be at Rangers, but still like they, that. Those kind of decisions. They, there's like a calling within yeah. humans to go, I want to do, do something that's meaningful, do something that's purposeful. And do something that's hard. Just the challenge. I mean, like this, this yeah. the solar cave down project, I'm, I'm hopefully exploring cave systems, but I don't think it's going to benefit humanity in any, any particular way. But just mm-hmm. to push yourself. Um, I say Mick gives you like, uh, like that, that sort of temporary wisdom and that you can appreciate the simple things and that the important things in life that we slightly start taking for granted again, like, you know, your family, water, food, a comfy bed, you know, hot shower. Um, but also, I think one of the reasons that, again, the search and rescue organization that I'm part of, or the forces, is the, the sense of community. There's a book, if we're on, on the recommendation, a book, a book um, called Tribe by Sebastian Junger. Mm-hmm. Um, that talks about, you know, not exclusively, but often people suffer from PTSD in the forces when they get back from operations. Like I loved my time in operations. I loved it. I had a great time. You know, I genuinely did. Even the bad bits were kind of, you know, and often the problem. Type two. Yeah, often the problem. Well, yeah, but even at the time, you know, I was, I used to love going operations. I used to volunteer to go on ops. But the, um, you know, it was it was coming home. It was just, it was just even within the expedition, the thing called uh, post exped blues. People go and do these big expeditions. They come back, and for the weeks and weeks afterwards, they're just depressed. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things is, is, is that sense of sense of community. The, the fact that whether you like people or not, it's kind of immaterial. You you stood next to them. You this you know the kind of band of brothers, um, and. I think that again, from an evolutionary point of view, human beings were designed to live in these small tribes of sort of sixty, eighty individuals, um, not designed to be in a very disjointed, dislocated um, kind of world. And I, you know, I, I think again, I think loneliness is a bigger issue than people think, um, and we're just. So, and that's why one of the reasons that I, I actually sort of made the switch a few years ago and got into stunts when I worked, when I worked on my first film, the people I worked with were just a, a very high caliber individuals, but also decent human beings who had your back within that little stunt team. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time in ten years, like since I left the forces, I was like, okay, people have got my back here. And almost whether they even if they don't maybe like you. They've still got your back because you know you're one of us. It's it's kind of like that almost military style ethos, um, and that's what I think attracted me more than anything else into that sort of that that stunt world. There's a real brother and sisterhood within it. Yeah, yeah humans are wired for that that community, but also 
to do hard shit too, especially yeah. males. Yeah. Like it's yeah, it's intrinsically rewarding to do something difficult. And I think to your point earlier, I don't think most people have the opportunity to find that part of them. I think it's kind of like there's like a space in the brain, like a block waiting to be filled by something difficult and challenging, and meaningful. And it's like we aren't often in the uncomfortable positions that facilitate that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that you can you can only improve problems if you know they exist. And sometimes if you don't put yourself in hard situations, you don't you don't realise where your feelings are. You might th- you might think mm-hmm. you'll act one yeah. way in a situation. But until you put in that situation and perhaps you don't mm-hmm. act as you would have liked to which is fine. You're like, okay, cool. That's exposed a flaw in my character. Therefore, I will work on that. So next time that situation happens, I will act like the way I would aspire to act. And I think to a certain extent, COVID showed that. There were some people who perhaps didn't act their best during that time, mm-hmm. um, but they've come out of it and the, the the better ones have kind of recognized the fact that perhaps they didn't handle it as well as they could have done. Um, but I think as long as you recognize it, then you, you, you're going to be better for it. Yeah, exactly. What a place to wrap up. Mm-hmm. Where can people find out more about you, follow your work? Um, so the best place, because I'm down with the kids, is, uh, is social media. Um, <laughs> it, it is Instagram. Um, I've got a Facebook account, um, which you're welcome to follow, but but um, it basically links to my Instagram. It's what I actually use. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, if you, if you want to, be to actually get back to you and answer a question it would be to DM me on Instagram um, I've got a website again but which you can email me through but I, I wouldn't bother to be honest the, the easiest way to do it is just to DM me on, on Instagram um, yeah thanks for it perfect thank you so much Not Andy massively appreciate it cheers